It's going to be hard to follow that up, especially this little dude over here that is just did not care about whatever the dance routine was. He was doing his own thing, all right? But I will attempt to follow it up uh, with a story. But before I, I share the story, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Mike. I'm a student pastor here at Hillside. And uh, get the opportunity now. I, nah, nah. None of my students would do that, okay? None of them would do that for me. In fact, they have planned at times to get up and leave all at the same time while in the main building, okay? They, told, they threatened me that they were going to do that one, one Sunday when I spoke. Uh, let me start with a story, though. Don't know about you, but in the morning, you're kind of getting ready for work. You, your wife, like everybody in your household, getting ready for work. And uh, normally my wife leaves a little bit before I do. Her schedule starts a little bit earlier than, I, than mine. And she's normally a little bit more concerned about getting out the door and looking good than I am, obviously. And so one morning, uh, she's kind of getting close to getting out. I'm getting close to leaving as well. And I realized, like right before I head out the door, that one of my dogs overnight has uh, wet his bedding and his uh, blanket, right? And so he does not want to go back into his kennel. And so I just think, I'm not even going to say anything about this to my wife. It's not something, she's normally the one that would be more concerned about doing something for him. So I'm just going to kind of go the extra mile here, not even mention it throw it in the wash. When I get home, I'll remember to throw it over into the dryer. We'll be good to go, right? Let's go the extra mile. And uh, so we both go about our work days. Obviously, no thought is given to this. Uh, I come home normally halfway through the day, let the dogs back out, let them back in. We're all good. Forget about everything that's in the wash, right? So I get home that night. And I thought that I would have remembered to switch everything over and throw it into the dryer immediately, but I didn't, okay? And so right around dinner time, I realized, oh, I've got this bedding that is in the wash that needs to get switched over to the dryer. And so right before dinner, very quickly, I get up, take everything out of the wash, throw it in the dryer, turn it on, boom, good to go. After dinner, I hear the buzzer go off. Some of you are already laughing. After dinner, I hear the buzzer go off. And so I make my way to the laundry room. As I open up the laundry room door, I met with the warmth of the dryer and also something that smells bad that is leading me to believe that my dog did not only go number one overnight, (laughs) he went number two as well. And I had not spotted this or smelled it in the morning in a rush. And as I opened up the dryer, it was confirmed (laughs) that for the past 45 minutes, I had been heating up that number two and letting it roll all around. And if there was one good thing that came out of those COVID masks, it was that I still had a few hanging around And so I put some peppermint on on the inside of them, put that bad boy on and got inside that dryer and scraped everything out and cleaned everything out. Now, some of you may be like, Mike, just throw the dryer away. (laughs) Literally, just throw it away. Not even worth it, Mike. Go spend an extra five, six, seven hundred dollars. Not even worth it. 
Joke's on me because a few months later our dryer did break and we, so we just ended up donating it anyway. All right? I didn't know that was going to happen. But in those moments, it's crazy how often, and I don't know if it's just me or if you find yourselves, these things kind of happening as well. In those moments where you're thinking, let's go the extra mile. Like, let's do something good like the Bible talks about, right? Like, let's, let's kind of go past what I normally would do, pulling out, you know, accomplishing the mission of God, and let me, like, bless somebody. And it's in those moments that I just go, God, really? Like, really? Like, I tried to go the extra mile. I tried to serve my wife. I didn't even want this on her mind, and now I'm being punished for it, Right? And I'm sure that if we were, if we had time, we could just kind of sit in here and tell these stories about moments when we have looked at a situation and gone, oh, this is a really good opportunity to do what God has been calling me to do, to love, to do good for somebody, to kind of stop whatever my timeline was and jump in on somebody else's and serve them. And then something goes bad, right? And you think, God, why would you like not bless this moment? Uh, I've had these moments where I've seen people with too much, too many grocery bags. And so it's like, let me put everything down that I'm doing and go help. And I miss one of the handles or it splits open from the bottom. And now we have glass spill. And I'm just like, thanks, God. Appreciate that right? Or, you know, those moments when you are in like somebody else's car and you can see something that is, it's not broken, it's just off. And so you're like, how about I try to fix this, right? Like a little door handle or something and not even tell them that I'm going to do it just to bless them. You know, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to pop that thing back into place. And while you're trying to pop that thing back into place, you actually break the plastic of it, right? Like we all probably have those moments, these humorous, almost ironic moments of like, come on, God, seriously? Like I, I'm doing, I'm obeying. I, I'm, I'm trying to bring about your kingdom on earth by blessing other people. And it seems like I keep getting bit while doing that. And then there are not just these humorous ironic moments in our life. There are these, maybe for some of you, these ongoing times, locations, relationships, where you have been so intentional about bringing the goodness of God to other people, and you have seen nothing out of it. Nothing. If anything, generosity that you has, have given has been thrown back in your face as manipulation. Times of goodness and grace and forgiveness have been used against you, and you're just sitting there going, God, really? It's been years. I've been sacrificially serving and giving of myself to this person or this family for years. And it seems like they are actually further away from following you than they were when I met them a couple years ago. Come on, God. And in these moments, I, I, I don't know why, but my mind always goes back to this verse that Paul says right at the end of Galatians. Mike, 
We must not grow weary in doing good. For in due time, at some time, we will reap if we do not give up. That's the verse that always pops into my head. Every time I break someone's car handle, okay? Every time the grocery bag, bag rips open from the bottom and I'm like, what is going on here, God? I say, Mike, don't grow weary. Do not grow weary. Continue on. It's the reminder of God's truth that comes back to me. Now, this last fall, this verse, I guess you could say, took on a little bit of a, a fuller or greater meaning in my life. I, I was watching a, a uh, video, a right now video with Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, a, uh, what's the, the series called? Something comes, the gospel comes with a house key, I think is what it's called. And in it, someone who herself had come out of the LBG, LBGT plus community, sorry. All right, there's so many letters now, I don't even remember all of them. Someone that came out of the community herself is recognizing and talking through in the video about how much society and culture has changed over the last few decades and how confused Christians are. What do we do? And she says this phrase, what do you do when the gospel now and a lot of the Christian ideas that accompany it come across and are perceived as hate speech? And Christians are so kind of, I guess, just sitting there, sitting on their hands, not knowing how do I flesh out, how do I live for the kingdom, how do I obey God and evangelism, like what would that look like in my life in the Western world as it sits in the year 2022? And that kind of started me in a, in a little bit of a journey to try to see what really is going on, especially as a student pastor, what has been going on. Obviously, I've, I have been aware of changes, right? We all are aware of changes, but I wanted to kind of see a little bit more of what is at the root of all of these changes. And so uh, I feel like Someone that did a great job, he did a, a sermon last year, uh, Gare Jones, a pastor of Vintage Church LA, in his, in his sermon on the shift of culture, starts kind of going through what has changed. What, what has gone on as we have moved from a modern society into the postmodern society? And what's crazy, and the students, we just went through this a couple weeks ago, uh, and we've gone through it a few times over this last year, just so that our students are all aware of everything that is shifting right now around them. What's crazy is that the modern uh, culture and thought processes have been going on since the year 1600. And from that year until about 1980, we had this modern way of thinking. Now, modernism brought about a couple of things. It brought about the fact that we pursued objective truth through experimenting, through evidence, so that we could find empirical data, so that we could understand knowledge at a higher level than it had ever been understood. Modernism comes right on the backside of the Dark Ages. And so what many people believe was almost this time period of there was no desire to understand truth, data, science. Now modernism comes out of that and says, no, we can study it. The scientific method, all these things come out of modernism. 
And they believe that objective truth is pursuable and accomplishable. And one of the extremes of modernism really is that not only is objective truth accomplished, but it applies to all people at all times in all cultures. Okay, this is why for Christians, we're like, hey, we can jump on on board with that. Because the gospel, the message about Christ, his death, his resurrection, the justification and righteousness that he offers through his own life is, guess what? Applies to all men and all women and all cultures across time everywhere. So for a lot of Christians, modernism is like a, a sweet spot, a comfort zone. Right? And because you can achieve objective truth, guess what? Then there are authority figures that know that truth and can share it. And up until the 1980s, pretty much everybody jumped on board and went, we believe them when they share it. Right? And because of all of this, evidence is such a premium in the modern time period. And for us, I don't know about you, I love evidence. As a pastor, a follower of Christ, someone that dabbles in apologetics, hey, let's talk about archaeology that's found about the Old Testament. Let's talk about the evidence that we have that Jesus actually came, he actually lived here, he actually served, he actually died, he actually was resurrected. Let's look at the ancient accounts to see if Jesus was here. I love it. All right, I'm a modern thinker. In the year 1980, though, we start having this shift. And just in the same way that modernism came out of the Dark Ages, postmodernism comes out of modernism, right? Post, after. And postmodernism wanted to start poking some holes in modernism. And so what it says is, you believe that objective truth can be obtained through neutral analysis, objective analysis of any experiment that you do. Guess what? We don't believe that. Because you as a person have layers and layers of, I'll call it baggage, but of knowledge, wisdom, experiences that have now tainted your view of this evidence and this outcome. So guess what? Objective truth is not achievable. And to a, to a point, they, ha- they, they are t- correct, right? It is really hard to be 100% neutral and objective. But the extreme parts, like once you start getting over here, all right, the extreme parts of postmodernism, it's because you are not a neutral person observing this evidence, guess what? We can't really know what truth is. Where modernism was like, we can attain it, postmodernism says, who knows? It's all tainted evidence. Right? Because of that, we now swing down into autonomy. So where modernism was like, you know what? We believe in authority. We believe in people that have studied and are experts on the topic. Postmodernism is like, guess who's an expert on the topic? You. You're the only expert on the topic. Right? Because these authority figures, who, maybe they have their own dialogue. Maybe they have their own narrative. They have their own agendas. And so you are your, own, uh, are your only authority. Don't let anybody tell you 
what to believe or why to believe it. And because of that now, where modernists loved evidence, you know what postmodernists love? Experience. Because my experience in life is what matters most. And the more extreme you get into postmodern thinking, this experience can contradict all levels of empirical, experimental evidence and still be true to you. Right? And so do you see why Christianity, when it's talking about Christ and the message and the gospel that applies to all men and all women across all stages of time in all cultures is going to come in contact and conflict with postmodernism, right? And so then my level and understanding of these things is like, okay, I'm getting somewhere. This is why what Rosaria is talking about and Garrett Jones is talking about, he, he, they start realizing that in the midst of this shift, you probably have felt this as well, Christianity is going from being a majority in places to now starting to feel a little bit more like a minority. That rather than being at the center of public discourse, Christianity is now getting pushed to the fringe of public discourse because of how much it contradicts with postmodern thinking. Where Christianity used to be respected, now it is disrespected. And you may also have noticed and felt this, that in some places of Western society, Christians are no longer viewed as what is right with society, but rather what is wrong with society. Because tolerance of these personal truths, regardless of what of what evidence is saying, tolerance of these personal truths is the highest value. And for Christianity, we say, how do we tolerate some of these things? Add in another factor that British theologian, missionary, and author Leslie Newbigin notices and observes about our culture now. He says, what we have is a pagan society whose public life is ruled by beliefs which are false. And because it is not a pre-Christian paganism, but a paganism that was born out of the rejection of Christianity, it is a far tougher and more resistant, it is far tougher and more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian paganisms with which foreign missionaries have been in contact during the past 200 years. Here, without possibility of question, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. A missionary himself who spent much time in India says, you want to know where the hardest place to be a missionary is right now? It's not in India. It's not in Africa. It's not in the tribes of South America. The hardest place to be a Christian right now and to be a missionary is in the post Christian postmodern places in Western society because they are tougher to the gospel because everything they believe comes out of a rejection of that gospel. 
And all that I am speaking of right now, you may have never done any studying on it. You may have never looked into any of it. The news channel that you covered may have never said any of this, but you feel this all right now as you look across what's happening in our culture. And I'm not here to try to make us be afraid of it by no means. I'm here to bring awareness of it so that we as followers of Christ can continue to live and share and do good in a way that we do not become weary. The more that I've looked into this, the more that I've understood maybe something is that when culture refuses now to listen to the gospel, maybe more than ever within our own lives, they must now experience it. Now, obviously that experience should pop back up because what? Postmodernism values experience. And I am by no means saying that teaching the gospel ever loses any of its value. What I am merely asking of you, Hillside and the church, is to realize that the day-to-day ordinary actions that you have in your life have so much value because doing good within your communities may have a higher value in your life now than it ever has before in history. Let's go back to Galatians 9. And let's look at some things in front of it. Now, I'll pull up verses 7 and 8. But before I do that, Galatians uh, was my favorite book in college. I was figuring some things out. I was realizing what Paul, this argument that Paul is making in this case that he is making, that if you are going to follow Christ, then you're going to follow it through the gospel, through a life that was freely given and through forgiveness that is freely given to those who put their faith in it, right? And Paul's entire problem that he has in Galatians is that the followers that had accepted that gospel have given it up. And instead of realizing the grace that they have and the forgiveness that they have through Christ that is free, they've been polluted and turned and deceived to starting to live out their gospel gospel through the law and through works and through attainment of God's forgiveness. And for most of the book, Paul is just calling them back. He's making cases. He's making arguments saying, look, this is the better. This gospel is the way you want to live. It is so much more beneficial for you. And as he lays that out for chapters, right, he starts getting into, okay, now that you have this, how are you living this? And he starts to paint two contrasting areas of goodness, but not the good that we're talking about, a goodness that is more like right living goodness. Because he starts saying, do you want to live by the spirit? You want to live by the flesh? If you live by the flesh, here's the consequences of living by the flesh. And if you live by the Spirit, here's the consequences of living by the Spirit. Those consequences we know as the fruit of the Spirit, right? When you live in the Spirit, here's what's going to come out of your life. 
And right after he goes through that section, he starts kind of giving his last remarks in his letter to the church in Galatia. And in it, he starts talking about supporting one another. He starts talking about making sure that you're taking care of the teachers that are blessing you with the knowledge of the gospel, right? And then he kind of dives back into this, hey, that life that you're living, whether it's in the spirit or in the flesh, guess what? Something's going to come out of it. And he brings this image into it that they would have been very familiar with. And if you've been around Christianity for a while, you're familiar with as well, all right? Here's the image he brings in. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Don't be led astray in this area, church of Galatia. God will not be made a fool. For a person will reap, okay, what he sows. There's two words attached to each other. Because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. So Paul has connected this this idea and this truth of righteous living, living by the spirit instead of by the flesh, now to this agricultural image. What you sow, what you put into the ground, eventually you will reap it back. It's coming. Eventually it's coming. It will catch up with you at some point. And it will either catch up in a way that brings life or in a way that brings death. And then we get to verse 9. So we must not grow weary in doing good. Now, right now we're going, well, what does good mean? Is good actually good living, like righteous living? And I think there is some attachment here to that. But then, okay, in, uh, in verse 10, look how Paul now adds another part of doing good. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of faith. So Paul's like, do good, live right. You will sow that lifestyle and you will reap that lifestyle. Now, out of that, now, guess what? Do good to others. And in the same way, as you do good to others and you sow those seeds into the soil, you also reap, you will reap reward out of that. Now for us, if I go back to my original kind of examples that I gave, we don't really like that whole farmer's illustration, the uh, putting something in the soil, waiting for months to see any type of growth or any type of fruit from it. That's not really how we roll in society anymore. We like stuff now. We like it hot. We like it fresh. At the moment that we click a button, we want something there 15 minutes later at our house. And if it's not, I'm not paying the delivery fee, right? But for Paul, he's like, I want you to see that right living, first of all, and then doing good are sometimes very slow and patient processes. And that as you have been agonizing and for years poured into these relationships, keep doing it. At some point, you will reap 
At some point, you will have reward. Well, going back to verse 9, when Paul says doing good, what would that even look like? And I don't want to narrow our definition of what good would look like. I want to actually broaden our definition of what doing good would look like. The, the most beautiful phrase that I have heard as I have kind of been looking at all of this is one pastor used this phrase, that we are demonstrating the kingdom of God to the communities around us. We are demonstrating them. And so I wrote a few things down, and like I said, in no way should this narrow our view. I hope that it only expands it. I wrote down a few things, that when we demonstrate the kingdom, we understand just because uh, this is like the tone-setting passage, I think, of the kingdom, one of them, is Jesus says, you know what the rulers of the Gentiles do? They lord it over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Like my favorite kingdom tone setting statement may be in the entire New Testament that Jesus says. In the Gospels, I should say. It must not be this way among you. You want to demonstrate the kingdom? You don't use your authority to gain more authority. You don't use your authority to get things like everybody else does in the natural world. If you want to demonstrate the kingdom, guess what? It's not going to be that way. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Just as the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is. You want to demonstrate the kingdom? Guess what? Your greatness, how you sow these, these demonstrations into the ground is going to come through what? Sacrificial serving. So that means that our generosity at times needs to be overwhelming in the presence of people that can give nothing back to us. That we need to be, be intentionally scheduling in moments of authentic hospitality into our lives and then sometimes spontaneously doing the same thing. That we need to be giving undeserved forgiveness because we have been shown that and is part of the kingdom as well. That we need to have this unconditional kindness, love, joy, compassion that is so present in every day of our lives. And I say unconditional, it's a word that I really dislike a lot. Because when Jesus says, hey, you know, you've heard about whole loving your neighbor, hating your enemies, I'm gonna rewrite this. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to, to, to bless those that curse you. That word unconditional, I like, I dislike that word when it comes to demonstrating the kingdom. Because when I sow, I like to reap back something really fast. And then guess what? If I can do that, I'm more motivated to sow again. Right? I just got some more seeds back. I got some fruit. Jesus says, that's not how we demonstrate my kingdom. We do it without expecting anything in return. No qualifications. Right? No qualifications. Now, Paul says 
he gives two kind of places where he wants this to show up. And this is the part where I'm like, Paul, why do you say it this way? But I think let's just look at it for a moment. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, everyone, everyone. And that's where the unconditional comes in. You do good, you demonstrate the kingdom of God to everybody. And then he says, and especially to those who belong to the family of faith. This little subset within the category of all. And I'm like, Paul, why would you say that? Like, wouldn't it be so much more important to do good and demonstrate God's kingdom to people outside of the church and not inside of the church. Like, wouldn't that do better? Like, wouldn't that be a better use of our resources? And I thought about something. You know how our family family and sometimes our spiritual family tend to get the worst of us? Like the worst moments of our lives are normally lived out within our own homes, right? And so what good is it if we demonstrate the kingdom outside of the walls of the church and people are like, I like Jesus, I wanna follow him. This is unbelievable that I get to experience what it means to be a follower of Christ through the extension of his own believers. And then they walk in our doors and it's a dumpster fire. Right? Yeah, let's welcome into that. It's a dumpster fire. It lines up as well. I don't think I have this up here. Maybe I just wrote it in my notes. I had some other verses. It lines up as well with something that Jesus said that I think that is so profound and yet maybe I've never even looked at it in the context of this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to his followers in John 13 and he says this, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so Paul is reminding us that while it is so important to make sure that we are doing good, that we are patiently sowing generosity and love and joy and peace, that our hospitality is just like overflowing and just lavishes so much value on people. Don't forget in the midst of that, that that same thing needs to be taking place, especially inside of the church. Because can you imagine being the new follower of Christ that you have been sowing into for so many years and now you finally get to reap something. You get to see the reward and the blessing that God has as they start following and they walk in the doors and they're like, uh, I'm out of here. What a waste. What a waste. Just cut down your tree after years of waiting for the fruit. What a waste. Hillside, don't give up. Don't grow weary. When you feel like you've hit that wall 
when you feel like you can't go any farther, don't grow weary. Because a reward, some type of reward, some type of reaping is coming. My, uh, my wife is a country music fan. It took her about 12 years of living in Texas, okay? There were many denials by her that she was a country music fan. Uh, this is a girl that in high school was like a hip-hop, rap, R&B fan. Uh, when I met her in college, she is like really into punk rock and emo. Like what I loved about my wife originally was she had this like beautiful purple curly, you know, hair tint. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, that's awesome. And uh, I would, when we lived in Texas, I would like hop in her car with her every once in a while and country music was always on. I'd be like, are you a country music fan now? And for years, she'd be like, no, there was just nothing else on. Well, this is like five or six years of this. I'm like, you're a country music fan. And she finally has accepted it, okay? Texas, you have done it to her, okay? The punk rock, rap, R&B, hip-hop, you have done this to her. She is now a country music fan. And what only has solidified her more within the genre of country music is she is starting to listen to podcasts that are either done by the country music fans themselves or like the wives, husbands, friends of country music fans. And so she's starting to get to know more about country music and like the stars that are there and just their lives. And so she has kind of picked a few of her favorites and she recently, like every once in a while, I'll be driving somewhere and she's like, I gotta tell you this story about how Thomas Rhett and his wife met and it's like so awesome and it's such a thing of God. And I'm like, babe, I do not care about how Thomas Rhett and his, my, his wife met, okay? Like not, like not on my radar of care, okay? But guess what? 15 minutes later, I now know. <laughs> she, uh, she turned me on to this podcast with Walker Hayes. Anybody familiar with Walker Hayes? Okay, now Walker Hayes, most of you probably know who he is, even if you don't know who he is, okay? He's the guy that sings Fancy Like. Uh, it probably has put Applebee's back on the map. Uh, Applebee's was about to declare bankruptcy. And now they're like, thank you, Walker Hayes, for coming out with this song, right? Because he's like, you know, his, his lyrics, um, you know, yeah, we fancy like Applebee's on a date night, got that Bourbon Street steak with the Oreo shake, right? We all there now? If I keep singing, you will actually know less about the song than just that short phrase, Okay. But he is on a podcast and he is sharing his story. And his story involves a guy named Craig. And at this point in Walker's life, he's already got six kids. He is trying to become a singer-songwriter in Nashville. He has failed up until this point. He, in his own words, is a raging alcoholic. He's drinking all day trying to figure out how to work and take care of his kids. He has two vehicles, but one of them has been given to him by a dealership because he was on a record label. But they don't know yet that the record label actually dropped him. And in the midst of him trying to make sure that that record or that that dealership doesn't find out that he got dropped by the record label, 
He's just trying to make ends meet. He said, I was literally budgeting for red tape so that I could put it over my brake lights so that I would stop getting pulled over by police officers. That's how little money we had. And in the midst of all of that and him trying to figure this out and be a macho man that can take care of his family, he is done with church and he's so happy to be done with church and faith because his wife is a follower of Christ. And he said, our lives were actually really happy. Like our marriage was really good until we got to the topic of faith. And that was where all of our arguments were, right? And he's like, finally, I think I broke her. We're not going back to church anymore. We're not talking about Jesus anymore. We don't need to share anything with our kids about faith. Like, I just want to be done and over with it. And in the midst of that timeline, his wife meets someone at a basketball game who her and her husband have just started a church, Craig. And she drags him to church. He said he had been drinking all day, and so by the time that they showed up on a Saturday night for a church service, he doesn't want to be there. He's been sarcastic. He's trying to been pollute the minds of his children on the way to church just so that they want nothing to do with this. And during the meet and greet of the service, Craig makes a beeline at him, he said. And he just shakes his hand, and with the most warm and authentic, I'm happy you're here. He said that that just broke down, started breaking down some walls in his life. And that over the next two years, as Walker and his family are just struggling to get by, Craig just keeps demonstrating the kingdom of God over and over and over again. He said he would show up at this guy's house drunk so often that the next morning he would actually have regrets about how much he had shared was going on in their family's life in the midst of his drunkenness. He hated that Craig was so authentic and so warm and so welcoming. And the reason I used unconditional early is because Walker said there was never condition to Craig. Walker had no money, no fame, nothing to offer. And Craig didn't care. He listened to his music. He memorized the lyrics. And in the midst of this, two years into knowing Craig, that dealership finds out that Walker has been dropped from his record label. And so he's got six kids, the minivan taken away, and now he's loading them up in his Honda Accord with him and his wife. He said that one night, Craig shows up at a baseball game. He's got a piece of paper. And Craig says, if you sign here, my minivan is yours. Walker's like, I can't do that, man. He said, my pride got in the way. I can't do that. This is your vehicle. I don't need this. And after... 15 minutes, finally, Craig said, somebody did this for me, and I'm doing it for you, and you're taking away the joy of generosity. Just take the stinking keys and sign this, the form. Walker's not a Christian. He doesn't follow Jesus. For two years, Craig has been sowing and demonstrating the kingdom of God with no condition to him. 
And as Walker is trying to process what just happened, he writes a song. Actually, I think it's down here. He writes a song. Not a Christian. He says, I still ain't figured church out yet, but Craig, I get. Nah, he can't walk on water or turn the Napa Valley red, but he just might be tight with a man that did. Now, he's not the light of the world, but I wish that mine was bright as his. Yeah, he just might be tight with a man that is. And out of Craig's influence and out of Craig demonstrating the kingdom of God to Walker with no condition, nothing attached, no qualifiers or hoops to jump through, Walker finally gives his life to Christ. And out of it, he looks back and goes, these were the moments that as I hated the idea of Christ, as I hated the idea of neediness in my life, Craig's authentic faith that was lived out towards me is what brought me to Christ. Hillside, don't grow weary in doing good. Maybe needed more now than ever before in your life because when people refuse to listen to the gospel, then they need to experience it. Let me pray. Father, this message is like so point blank and it's so simple in some ways and yet it's, it's just so hard and at times overwhelming for us to flesh out, put into practice, God. But Father, as a church and as individuals within this church, as we practice living through your spirit, God, will you open up our eyes to see how to demonstrate the kingdom to those that we come in contact with in our everyday, ordinary lives, Lord. Father, may we have more stories like this, looking for opportunities and expecting nothing in return. Just sowing and trusting that at some point you will be true to your word and we will reap something as a reward. Father, thank you for these moments together.